Okay. We're going to get started. I'd like the panel members besides Trip just to introduce themselves. Hello, I'm Christy Marks. I'm from Cornell, and I'll be talking to you later about hepatitis C. I'm Michael Yin from Columbia. And I'm Mike Sag from UAB. Uh, so we're going to have an exciting, I hope, interesting discussion about PrEP cases. And what I'm aiming to do with this is really to bring it down to the provider, uh, patient, or uh, healthy person asking for PrEP interaction. So to take Tripp's talk and to dri drive down, to drill down to you across the desk from an individual and what you would do, either with... In, in certain situations, and will hopefully to stimulate interesting discussion. So I'm not, this trip already showed this slide, and just to remind you, July 16th is the day this was approved, and it's notable, again, because as Trip mentioned, it's the first preventive uh, label indication for an antiretroviral. So let's go right into the cases. So a 28-year-old financial analyst appears in your office requesting PrEP. He is healthy and asymptomatic with a past medical history of treated syphilis. He reports having at least 12 male partners in the past six months. He engages in receptive and insertive anal intercourse and mostly uses a condom. He has received his hepatitis vaccines, his physical exam, and all laboratories are normal. He has educated himself thoroughly about PrEP following the approval by the FDA, including the caveat that PrEP should not be substituted for condoms. Despite this, he states that he wants PrEP for the protection it might provide and because he wants to discontinue the use of condoms. In a discussion, he says that he is being upfront with you as his provider so that he can maintain an open and trusting relationship. What do you do? Do you confirm his HIV-negative status and prescribe FTC after reviewing the potential risks and benefits, or do you advise him that you, you do not feel comfortable prescri prescribing PrEP if he is going to discontinue condom use? Please choose. Wow. So, perfect. Uh, <clears throat> this is what we strive for in ARS when it's 99 to 1 uh, maybe that's the wrong fraction to state today on the but what's the, wrong with the bars Scott <laughs> uh, I don't know I can't answer that which do we believe do we believe the orange or the colors or the percentages I think we'll believe the percentages unless I hear differently uh, so would members of the panel like to comment I think this engages the issue of how you feel for, with the CDC indication, the CDC guidelines and what you want to do to fully protect someone and with someone who's being openly honest about this and that's a bit of a dilemma, a medical ethical patient physician dilemma. So Tripp, do you want to please start and then we'll... Sure. I think this is exactly the kind of guy that you would want to use PrEP in. Uh, you're going to want to talk to him. You know, we, these kind of cases are a little bit artificial because you like to talk to people over time. 
um, and reinforce that condoms are important. You might remind him he got syphilis once, so it's clear that sexually transmitted diseases occur. But I, I would favor, um, number one, confirm his HIV negative status and prescribe TDFFTC for PrEP. We're trying to reduce his risk of infection. He's exactly the kind of person who's at risk by his history, number of partners, and practices. And our current efforts, the um, ABC, abstain, um, be faithful, and use condoms, may not work in this guy. So he needs something added on to that. So I would favor using PrEP in this guy. Anyone disagree on the panel? I agree. I would, I mean, I would definitely, um, I think the, his current use of condoms most of the time makes me concerned that there's some of the time he's not and that, you know, in that sense, PrEP would be a benefit to him even now, even if he didn't plan to discontinue condom use. And I would also just uh, stress other STIs, including hepatitis C, which we see, you know, cases of acute C and men who have sex with men. And I don't think most, um, we're seeing it more in HIV positive men, but I, you know, I wouldn't, I would say you could still be at risk. And I think most people don't consider themselves at risk for that disease. So I would want them, want them to know that, you know, about that possibility as well and the benefit of condoms for that particularly. Mike, did you have something to add? We have more complex cases coming, so. Okay, I'll just make two little points. One is that you know he could seek other providers if he doesn't get uh, the response from you. And the other, I think it's better to engage him at this point and provide the PrEP and educate him and engage him on the frequent testing for um, HIV infection uh, rather than having lost him to uh, loss of follow-up or another provider. Yeah, I'd, I'd pull out my instant circumcision kit and tell him it would only heal if he used a condom. <laughs> Uh, and I would just say I, I agree with number one personally uh, because this is a, an intelligent individual who's done all his research and could easily uh, just lie about what his intentions are. And it's better to engage and protect and then see what you can do down the road. Scott, can I ask you, you presented the same case at the Washington International AIDS Society meeting. And it was a huge audience and a big panel of people from around the world and as I recall, the consensus on the panel that day was actually the opposite. It was. I think uh, I've moved the meter a little bit, but I, I think it sort of it surprised, I think, a number of individuals to start just thinking about this. And uh, that's what we hope to do here, is really grapple with the situation. And of course, it's the sense you get one-on-one -on -one with an individual, but I think a provider-patient uh, relationship is a unique a new opportunity to get to engage. And I think this will be an evolution, just like TripSlide was about, uh, from last year to this year, about people, readiness to use PrEP or people who've used PrEP. So, so let's go, oh. so case number two. A 32-year-old healthy woman appears in your office to discuss the FDA's approval of, quote, a new medication to prevent AIDS that she heard about on the radio. Her husband is 39 and has been living alternately in New York and South Africa. He is known to be HIV positive but refuses to take ARVs as he feels well and doesn't trust doctors. Their relationship is monogamous and they use condoms. The most up-to-date information she has concerning her husband's HIV disease is from two years ago, October 2010, at which point his CD4 count was 295, his viral load was 75,000, 
He had a genotype done with an M184V mutation. It was subtype C virus. And a tropism assay showed pure R5 virus, a very complete initial workup <laughs> for a guy who now doesn't. I think the bill scared him off. Was the, so the woman is, woman's, woman's exam is normal, and a rapid HIV antibody test in the office is negative. You send off hematology, chemistry, and serologic studies, discuss PrEP, and ask her to schedule a follow up visit. All tests are negative, including a standard HIV ELISA and Western blot. A plasma HIV RNA sent as an extra precaution in case she's been infected is undetectable. And when she returns in 10 days, she remains eager to start PrEP and states that she will be 100% adherent. What do you do? Prescribe TDF-FTC as PrEP and ask her to return in three months for follow-up testing. Prescribe TDF alone as PrEP as her husband's virus harbors the 184 mutation. Construct a PrEP regimen, which includes Maraviroc. Inform her that you do not think she is a good candidate for PrEP at the present time because of the nature of her husband's virus. Okay, a nice spread. So, uh, a small majority, 52, 53%, will, would go at prescribing PrEP and ask it to return in three, in, and with TDF, FTC, 10% chose TDF, 24%, uh, interestingly, uh, per TRIPS talk, chose Maraviroc, and only 13% said that they would be concerned about the virus that is from the discordant husband. Comments. So this is, uh, relates to the issues of resistance and known resistance in the partner and the potential for resistance. So who would like to start? Mike? So this is difficult because we're in an area where we're sort of data-free zone. Uh, we could argue that the safest thing to do would be answer three with Maraviroc. It's almost certainly likely to work and you'd probably need another drug with it. Um, and so I think that's a safe answer. Uh, my guess, and I'll underscore that term, guess, is that even with an M184V, tenofovir FTC could well be protective if she takes it 100% of the time. And what am I basing that on? Well, the first thing is that tenofovir will still have pretty much full activity. Um, and the FTC will have some partial activity, although not great, maybe a half a log. So I think that if she took it every day as prescribed, that would be fine. But um, if, since I'm concerned about her, and I don't know for sure the issue about number one, um, I'd probably go with a Maraviroc regimen with uh, something else, be it maybe uh, uh, tenofovir. Very interesting. Trip. Yeah, one, one might say gutsy. Gutsy. <clears throat> Dr. Sack. Um, I, I went along with the audience. Um, in prescribing TDF-FTC. Uh, this woman is very much like the women who entered the partner's prep study. She's part of a discordant couple. She'll likely be highly motivated to take it. Remember that partner's prep was done in Africa, so probably a lot of the viruses that were circulating were subtype C, like this patient. Um, Scott threw us a curveball because of the M184V, which Mike's already commented on. But remember that tenofovir alone arm 
in the partners prep study also had significant efficacy um, in discordant couples. So I think I would go with that. Um, our, using Maraviroc at this point is um, yeah. interesting. <laughs> I was trying to be nice to the 24%. Yeah, no, I, you know, it's reasonable. I mean, we, we don't have the data to support it, but, but I think it's an interesting choice that obviously we're trying to study. So just a couple of comments. So one is uh, that Tenofovir was worked in partners prep, uh, but the, in the boys trial, that arm was stopped. The, uh, so we, we need more data, as we'll summarize a little bit later. Uh, the M184V is there, and it's certainly archived. It was two years ago. You don't know what population is at risk, what she may be in, uh, exposed to now, although it, it tends to persist, not as aggressively as the 103N, K103N, but it does persist. But the other issue is that the subtype C virus is make you, makes you worried a little bit about this situation even more because the and subtype C has a greater propensity to develop the K65R mutation. So this, I don't think there's a clear right answer to this. I think it's, I would probably choose one uh, as well because of the non-toxicity of the FTC component and not knowing what the majority of the circulating virus is in the, in the partner. Uh, but there's, the, there's a risk here, and I think that more frequent, frequent testing, et cetera, is important. Uh, and if there were a trial with Maraviroc, and she were eligible, this would be a good case for that. So this is another take on the resistance issues uh, as not just people either came in with, as Tripp mentioned in the studies, people came in with resistance or acquired resistance because they were in the seroconversion phase. So I won't go through this uh, since Tripp did such a nice job, uh, but we have to just remember as we in the discussion session that the follow-up and it came from the audience, it's going to be three months or so, maybe two, but probably more like three routinely, and there'll be more opportunities for people to get drug resistance uh, before they, and keep taking the drug before they show up for their next follow-up. Okay, let's go to case three. A 19-year-old Dominican woman who is undocumented appears in your clinic for evaluation of recurrent painful sores in her genital region. Her exam is notable for a cluster of five millimeter ulcerative lesions in the vulvar area. The DFA is positive for HSV2, HIV, RPR, hepatitis B, serology is all negative. Her uh, GCCT nucleic acid amplifications are negative, and her RNA level is undetectable using a 20 copy per mil assay. She states that her partner is 26 and basically healthy but has had an episode of a painful rash on one side of his chest in the past year, a whitish coating on his tongue for months, and frequent recurrences of sores on his penis. He refuses to see a provider. So there's uh, lots of medical information there. You prescribe valacyclovir and her vulvar lesions resolve. On a second visit, she admits to you that she is solely dependent on her male partner for food and shelter. She knows that he sees other women, but she feels powerless to negotiate the use of condoms when he wants to have sex, and she has not been actually physically abused, but is afraid of his temper. What do you do? One is the easy one. Offer counsel and support and refer to social services. Uh, contact the male partner directly and try to reason with him about seeing a provider and using condoms. Prescribe 
TDF-FTC, which you can provide free through a demonstration project, give her a home HIV salivary test kit, and ask her to urge her male partner to test himself that evening. And then you can do one, two, and three, one and three, one, two, and four, or one through four. So give yourselves a 15 seconds, and then vote. Okay, extremely interesting results. So uh, first I'll give you my personal take on this. This I think is a situation where I feel probably the strongest about being able to empower, put something in the hands of a woman to protect herself uh, when there's a refusal to use condoms and there's no, and, and she's in a powerless, as powerless in a relationship with her partner. Uh, undocumented, financially and socially totally dependent, uh, and clearly afraid, but, and potentially a victim. So this is where I think the power of a demonstration project or if we can get the drug uh, free is, is a good thing. So I would, my own answer was one and three. I think the, the issue of uh, two relates to two and four personally, and I'll open up to the panel, one is, uh, puts her at risk, I think. Uh, contacting this guy might actually cause a firestorm and even precipitate physical abuse, and I think I'd be worried about that. And four is similarly, I think the question is you have to get to know her and her better and what the relationship is and whether she could introduce it at the home. Uh, so I open this up to the panel, but I think this answer is incredibly interesting. Any comments? <laughs> we uh, agree with you. We'll take an audience question before. Yeah, one in three. Oh, on my slide, it's number five. No, it's six down. Just out of sync. It's frame shifted. Right, it's frame shifted, yeah. Oh, great, okay. So, so two-thirds said agreed with your answer. Get okay. counseling so, and give her prep. Okay. And not contact the partner or shove a swab down his throat. <laughs> All right, I'm reassured by that. <clears throat> so, Scott, yeah, I th of course, I think you're right. I mean, this is um, a very difficult social situation, and, yeah, the counseling would be beneficial to her. If nothing else, having someone to talk to and, and ventilate about this, she's in a tough position. I think that the challenge here is that we're prescribing a possibly toxic drug to a woman whose partner isn't documented to be positive for HIV. So that's really the issue. If he were known to be positive, then it'd be more like your, I guess your first case and, uh, and, and it was just, or your second case. And, and the, the point is there, it's a little bit easier. What if she were one of the one in 10,000 or one in 1,000 who developed renal insufficiency um, while on this, they say, well, while we put her at risk for this, uh, but I think weighing it out, the likelihood that this is very high that this guy indeed has HIV and she is in harm's way for sure. Um, and I think I would definitely treat her. So I didn't want to make it easy. And for this audience, I think I, I wanted to really to tackle the fine points. And when you have to infer from the patient's history and make judgments that without all the data and what's the, what's the risk 
benefit analysis. So can, we, can we just add one thing? You, you actually made it easier for us because you gave him a history of perhaps zoster and thrush. But I think one thing we're all going to be facing is the worried well who really aren't at increased risk. And how do you counsel that? So if you get people coming forward and saying, I want PrEP, and then you talk to them and they're actually doing all the right things and don't seem like they're really at high risk, are we still going to prescribe it? Okay. I don't know. Let's move on, I think. So we've got a couple of... Uh, a married couple appears in your office for advice following a fertility clinic visit, which found that the husband was HIV positive and the wife HIV negative. The husband is a 30-year-old businessman who travels globally and admits to visiting commercial sex workers in many countries. He is asymptomatic with no comorbid illness, normal physical exam, and routine hematology and chemistries. HBV and HCV serology is negative, RPR negative, chlamydia and GC screening negative. The viral load is 35,000, CD4 account 525. Uh, genotype is subtype B with no drug-resistant mutation. This is in the, the positive husband. He is reluctant to start ART given that he feels well and his CD4 count is above 500. The wife is a 27-year-old attorney who has been in excellent health. She has been trying to get pregnant for three years, hence the visit to the fertility clinic. After counseling, this has got giggles before, the husband pledges to remain faithful and the couple voices its commitment to stay together. However, they have decided to defer trying to get pregnant for the time being. So the couple is in your office and seeks advice from you about the safe and effective use of antiretrovirals to prevent HIV transmission from the husband to the wife. How would you advise this couple? Uh, don't look at number five yet. The husband should be urged. Yeah. <laughs> the husband should be urged to start on. Tefavirin's TDF and FTC, despite his reluctance, as it will benefit him and prevent transmission to the wife, i.e. HBTN052. The wife should start taking daily TDF FTC as PrEP. The husband shouldn't be, be treated because of his reluctance and his excellent clinical status. Uh, the husband should, number three, the husband should start on Tefavirin's TDF FTC, and the wife should start taking daily Tenofovir FTC indefinitely. Four, the husband should start on the three drugs and fix those combination, and the wife should start taking TDF-FTC, but stop it when her partner's viral load drops below 20 copies per mil. And the Connie Benson answer to this question is the wife should dump the husband. Vote. So uh, a fifth of you uh, vote for independence of the two, and 40% and uh, the plurality is to treat him and indefinitely prep her. Uh, so this is a situation that actually, some of the questions that came after Tripp's talk, I, I tried to alluded to this issue. When you, prep a when you treat the positive, prep the negative, how do you combine the treatment as prevention concept from HPTN 052 in treating the positive partner of a discordant couple with the prep data that in, in the negatives? Uh, and this is actually a microcosm of what's being thought about in communities and 
in, in community randomized trials in Africa to try to have populations where you test and treat, treat the positives, prep the negatives, and see what you can do to the epidemic. Uh, so there, this is a, a data-free zone because this hasn't, these have been talked about in parallel tracks, but I would ask the panel to, what their opinion is. Uh, do they agree with the plurality of number three, uh, or is number four a viable strategy? Either oh. of the mics want to? Sorry? There are two mics, so I, you can no, choose. There's actually four mics, but now six. <laughs> there are oh, six mics. Ahead. Okay. I do think number four is a viable strategy. I mean, again, we're in a data-free zone, but um, transmission, as we know, without, with a well-suppressed um, infected person is quite low. And uh, certainly beginning with both of them on makes sense, and then the decision can come later. But I do think four is a valuable strategy. This husband's obviously squirrely, so I think that the woman should do everything she can to protect herself. Um, he was reluctant to start it, and once he starts it, he may well stop it. Um, what kind of a guy is seeing commercial sex workers and trying to get pregnant at the same time with this one? I mean, it, are you like him? Is that why you clapped? <laughs> you were endorsing that? Is that... <laughs> I, rec I recently had a case very similar to this, actually, and um, they did successfully get pregnant through the fertility treatment, and then during the pregnancy, the husband developed secondary syphilis. So I'm leaning towards number five. <laughs> but, <laughs> after that experience. But um, I, do, I agree, because of that experience, I'm more, I, I, I do think, you know, if you have a, you know, evidence of past behavior that makes you concerned for, for her well-being. I think she should take independent steps to protect herself and not put all of the, the um, responsibility in his hands. Uh, so if you take a step back and look at the larger picture, if you had a discordant couple that was truly monogamous, faithful with one another, the positive partner was very interested in taking treatment, was 100% adherent, you, you knew these people for a long time, and uh, would you rely solely on treating the positive partner uh, to undetectability and then feel comfortable if at times there was unprotected sex? So there the answer, uh, that, that's a, probably a, a better way to frame that particular issue, because then we're asking how much do we believe that the 052 data that showed virtually no transmission uh, when the partner had undetectable virus occurred. And we, we face this every day in clinic, right, with any discordant couple. And I think the answer is somewhere in between. And it's really a question of the relative tolerance of the negative partner to take that small, very small, but probably not zero risk. That's how we have to present it. My personal belief, even though I'll underscore that word, belief is that there won't be any transmission. If the positive partner is truly undetectable and remains so, there are, there are data from 2000 in Uganda uh, that Tom Quinn did that showed no transmission when the discordant partner's viral load was, I think it was less than 1,000 even. Um, and so I don't think it's likely, but if that partner, the negative partner, says, I can't tolerate that, if I ever converted, I would, you know, um, have a lot of problems, then I think in that case I would treat indefinitely. But otherwise, I would default to not 
uh, recommending necessarily treatment for the negative partner, the positive partners as you defined. The, the only thing to add to that is on the famous 052 study where we've all heard if you treat the positive partner, you reduce transmission by 96%. You've got to look at that statistic. A third of the HIV infections on the 052 study, the new, newly infected partners, were from viruses that didn't match the discordant partner who was HIV positive. So that study conclusively shows that people have sex outside their relationships. And so we do have to think about yeah. that. And, and I, I'm glad you mentioned 96 because when you look carefully at those data, that one transmission in the uh, treatment group occurred very early and so probably before the viral load was undetectable. And, and I think it's hard even when you counsel and get to know a couple and stuff, you still honestly don't know are people having sex outside their relationship. Absolutely. So this is uh, human behavior is human behavior. This is why we need an HIV vaccine, talking back to an earlier talk. Um, and it's re to reiterate that it's, it's not just antiretrovirals alone. The counseling about safe sex practices as best the message can get through is, a, is very important, assessing the situation, and, but realizing that people are people and behavior is, uh, is quite variable. But I think overall, my personal take on this is, is if the situation, not in this case, but in this, I agree with the plurality here that uh, she's at risk, or, I, or number five seems good to me as well. But the. Uh, but in the situation I described hypothetically with a committed partnership, uh, we'd be giving out a lot of Truvada or TDFFTC to the negative partner uh, and risking the toxicities there. Uh, if, and so I think, but I think it's a question that we'll raise, and I, I use this case to bring these two issues together because the discussions have been somewhat balkanized in the editorials and, and op-eds. So I want to also just to highlight um, a very summary type slide for what Trip outlined and what we know and what we don't know. So I think the issues for women are still uncertain because positive par partners in PrEP showed a very positive result uh, for both women and men. TDF2 showed a positive result overall in the aggregate but didn't have the numbers to look at the gender specificity. FEMPREP was negative, and VOICE is still pending for the to know for FTC, but the vaginal microbicide and the uh, to know for your arms are, have been stopped. So we're all waiting for the VOICE trial a little bit to try to see what where this balance goes. And so this is the conclusion. Uh, regular, I think the issue is follow-up, regular HIV testing, adherence, toxicities and drug resistance, all the things you've heard about. So I, I'd like to thank the panel very much to stay here. Uh, and we're going to now open it up for questions. Uh, there we go. So thank you very much. Uh, the cards are coming around. I've already gotten some. We're going to spend uh, 10 minutes on answering some of your questions. And please come up to the microphone. Sir, please identify yourself. And I'm Gary Spinner from New Haven, Connecticut. I'd like to hear the panel's thoughts about getting a negative ELISA and starting PrEP versus getting an HIV RNA. In two of the cases, an RNA was, was uh, obtained. 
So your thoughts about the comfort level with a negative ELISA and then starting somebody? Yeah, that's a great question. The, uh, I can tell you on our study, um, given what happened on the other studies that didn't check, that we are going to be doing an HIV RNA on all patients prior to coming in and a rapid test to check for antibody. Is that practical? I think so. I, I would probably do that. Clearly, you don't want to start prepping anyone that's symptomatic. Um, I've anecdotally heard of cases of acute infection that now have been diagnosed by checking the RNA um, in those folks. So it's a reasonable thing to do. Okay, this is an important question. There seems to be a bias towards giving drugs rather than patients making difficult decisions, leaving an abusive partner, dumping an unfaithful husband, denying drugs to patients, uh, planning unsafe sex. Does anybody want to comment on that? I don't think there is, personally, I don't think there's a bias. I do, my bias is toward being aggressive with antiretroviral drugs when they're indicated, and they, uh, but you have to be careful about them. I think it's, they're not for everyone, and you have to use individual judgment. But here, what, we're, what I was trying to put forward is that you have to be careful, and they're not indicated in all circumstances, but you've got to think carefully and we have a new tool, and we have to use that properly. And I, as I said, for some individuals, this will make the difference as to, to self-empower to protect themselves. Comments from the panel? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You, the cases that you showed us gave us a wide range of people, um, everything from the 19-year-old woman who had no power at all over, over what she was being exposed to all the way over to the financial analyst who told you he was going to change his behavior if you gave it to him. So it, it's clearly complicated, but I agree with you. We have a new strategy. Um, we haven't been able to protect people as well as we would like because people are still getting infected. So 47% of people are in a tough situation. It's, uh, we've learned that from the election. <laughs> What, what's your reference for that? I don't know. <laughs> Just the number that came out of the blue. I'm, I'm staying apolitical, although I will, <laughs> I will mention that my wife said to me this morning, if we watch the debates, our heads will explode. <laughs> so, so we're probably going to watch the replay of Homeland. Uh, so here's another question. When a couple fully practices one of the available prevention strategies, safe sex, treat to prevent, prep, how much additional prevention is achieved by adding a second method? We don't know, is the, is the answer. All the PrEP studies, remember, employed the, the um, condoms and risk reduction strategy, and PrEP was on top of it. So they were all employing two strategies. What about treating the positive partner? What about vaccine? What about microbicides? What about all the other approaches? Most people think, um, as Morgaine ended her talk with, that we, we need a multi-pronged approach to prevention and trying to do as much as we can in the community. Not every intervention is going to work for one person. I, I remember back in the early, early days, there were a lot of discussion about whether condoms were 100 percent effective. And, I think my take on all that debate was that if they're used 100% of the time, they're pretty close to 
protective. Remember the lambskin versus latex and all that. But I think the problem is that they're just not used 100% of the time or they're not used properly and that's where they fail. One of the things I wonder about is a lot of my patients, um, serosort, you know, they have sex with people of the same HIV status and whether PrEP will change that, whether people will be less likely to ask about a person's status or um, care what their sex partner. I don't know if there's been any data on that in terms of how behaviors but change. I will say that the recompetition of the leadership groups in the prevention field, uh, both vaccine and non-vaccine prevention, combination prevention studies are going to be the one of the major efforts uh, to actually answer some of these questions uh, over the next uh, grant cycle. Uh, uh, one comment while I have you all, you don't have the cases in your folder. They're coming by email, again, part of the green movement of the ISUSA. So all attendees will get the cases uh, emailed to them. So look out for that. Uh, and so here's a question. Type C virus is a, is a 184 mutation seen after those in those not on treatment. I don't ever think I've ever seen one in practice or not on medication. So I'm not, I think that relates to the, to the pressure of the drugs, but you can see M184s in people who've been off treatment for a while mm -hmm. or have acquired it. If they acquired it themselves as a transmitted virus, then the clone is going to be there even though they diversify. So it can, it's variable. CDC estimates 16% of people newly infected are re have some drug resistance mutation. Um, M184 VRI would be a, probably one of the more common ones. Um, uh, opinion statement, I do not believe most people with HIV use condoms, do you? <laughs> um. No, <laughs> but people without HIV don't use condoms much either, so there you go. Why isn't circumcision been promoted aggressively in this country? I'm Mike. So I didn't question. hear. So why isn't why isn't circumcision being promoted aggressively in this country? I don't know. I'm Jewish. Everyone gets circumcised. <laughs> Doesn't seem to be a problem. By the way, that line probably could only work in this city. It wouldn't work in Birmingham. Um, but um, welcome to New York, pal. Yeah, thanks. I love it. I love it. Uh, I, I don't know. I think there's a lot. I mean, what surprised me, just to go off on a bit of a tangent, if you remember about a year ago in the Bay Area, there was a, a, some sort of referendum of a group that was trying to ban circumcisions. I, I don't understand that. I mean, it, it was just crazy. But I don't know why it's not used more. Um, I, I think it's, there's a couple reasons. The three studies that showed that male circumcision reduces risk of HIV acquisition by 60% were done in three African countries in heterosexual men. Um, when they, it's never been a prospective study in gay men, but when they looked retrospectively, they saw no association between circumcision and acquiring HIV infection. Why should it be different? Not crystal clear. And then the point that you made as a, as a semi-joke is that many American men actually are circumcised. Um, they are rolling this out in countries where circumcision is not common. Um, it's being really rolled out as a prevention strategy. But, but the uptake is actually quite low in some areas. I mean, 
I was in Durban, South Africa. I went to a circumcision clinic, and there was nobody there except for the providers. Uh, so it's not a very popular thing, at least among adults. They're men. trying to change cultural norms about this, and there has been some success in some yeah. settings. Uh, that was presented at the uh, Washington meeting. Um, so over time, there, there's hope that this could become, quote, uh, standard. So two quick questions, uh, and we'll move on to the next talk. And prep for discordant couple with the infected partner being an elite controller. So the elite controller, let's define that. So that, I would define that as someone who has undetectable virus, yet they are certainly infected. And the answer is unknown. There are some studies recently and maybe throughout the last 10 years that show if you look in seminal fluid by PCR detection, you can, you can detect virus occasionally by culture, but not, not so much. And it reminded me a lot of, of Dr. Silicano's talk earlier today where you can detect remnant virus even in someone like uh, Mr. Brown who was cured, but you don't, you're unable to culture. I think it's unlikely that the transmission will occur in that setting, but I really don't know the, what, how unlikely it feels like it approaches zero, but probably isn't zero. So I would just say I would encourage the use of condoms in that situation and probably would not prep the, 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 the negative partner. Uh, so just one last question. Uh, now that the quad is available, any thoughts about using this for prep? Mm. So the so-called quad is tenofovir, FTC, L-vitegravir, and cobacista. Mike's going to talk about that uh, compound in his... Um, talk somewhat, but one of the questions that that raises is, do you want to use a treatment regimen to prevent and um, engage the potential for more toxicity by using more drugs? Um, and then the other caution I would say is L-vitegravir hasn't been around that long, neither has cobacistat. so do you want to use a drug that has a limited safety record in HIV-negative people? Yeah, I think your point about treatment uh, is, is the key thing. So for pre-exposure prophylaxis, it appears that if taken regularly, that, that the two-drug regimen is probably sufficient and, and a treatment regimen is probably excessive. In post-exposure prophylaxis, I think it's likely the CDC is going to change their recommendations very soon and recommend for all post-exposure prophylaxis, like for healthcare workers, that treatment regimens be used. And you know that it's kind of hedged with two drugs on occasion. I think they're going to simplify that on the next iteration. Should be out soon. Okay. I'd like to thank the panel and the audience.